and then I'll pray, and we'll dive into our first of a new series. Exodus 31, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel, that in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth. On the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would give us a vision as to what you are calling us to here in this moment through your scriptures. And that is simply to receive a gift that we are not God, we are not slaves, but we are your creations made, yes, to work, yes, to see things push forward, yes, to create the cultural mandate to increase and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. But before any of that, we rested with you. We came and were present with you. That you value beauty over utility. You value presence over performance. So Lord, let us rest in that in this moment because that's a real countercultural message and really a counter-soul message for most of us. And I would willing to say all of us on some level. So Lord, teach us now so that we might learn to Sabbath not out of a sense of breaking down finally, but rather accepting the invitation. Lord, let your spirit go forward and preach your word. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you had a good holiday and um, a lot of you uh, look good. Um, but I've talked with enough of you to know that you're also extremely tired. And I'm not saying like you look tired in this moment right now, particularly to the ladies. I've been around the block enough to know that you don't tell a woman that she looks tired without first considering if she's just not wearing makeup today and normally wears it. And in fact, young men, this is my word to the wise for you. In fact, this might be the sermon for you. Um, (laughs) If you are tempted to say you look tired, stop yourself and say, hey, there's a real natural beauty about you today. It will go much better for you. It will go much better for you. So that could be a prophetic word from the Lord. I don't know, but either way. The fact is is that I just have this sense that a lot of us, as I talk with you, as I talk with, you know, just even express my own self, that there is just a general tired and weariness about us. And that's cultural-wide. It's interesting that we are a culture that has the least amount of physical work in all of human history. I mean, in the times of biblical writings, 
You notice they never talk about like, hey, you should like get exercise and you should work out so many times. That's because they lived in an agrarian culture. To live, to go through your daily life was brutal on your body. There's no one who's just like, man, you should really like, you know, try to like get a couple reps in before you get going because there was no extra energy to expend except for that which it was to stay alive. And yet we find ourselves in a time and a culture where we have very little physical work. Most of us perform jobs from behind a computer, but yet we are constantly exhausted. And of course, it's not a physical exhausted. It's a intellectual, it's an emotional, it's a soul weariness. And you start looking at our lives and you're like, well, of course we're exhausted. Just look at the way that we work. The Japanese have a term, kuroshi. It means death by overwork. And they mean it. I mean, they're one of the most famous uh, financial uh, gurus of Japan was a man who just was killing it in the 1980s when uh, Japan had their financial boom. He was working uh, 90-hour weeks. And then he was not only, he was young, he was in his 20s, and just he was trying to train like CEOs or people that were above him, the president level, VP level. He was training them because he was just so talented at finance. And then the stock market takes a dive, and then he gets more pressure put on him, and he drops dead at age 26. And they had already had this term, but they just said that's the most famous example of Kiroshi, death by overwork. Here's what's really scary. We work 137 hours a year on average, more than the Japanese. We work 260 more than the British, and of course, 499 more than the French. (laughs) We take the least amount of vacation days of any culture. 37% of people say that they take less than seven vacation days a year. It's why a lot of employers are offering you unlimited vacation outside of the fact that they don't have to pay out your vacation if they terminate you, but also for the fact that they just know you won't take it. And even when you do take it, you have constantly the thought of answering emails or texts or continually to engage and work like practices. We don't even vacation well when we take the few times that we do to do it. Even though there's all this research that says increasingly just the idea of thinking about your work creates the same all the same, indoor, or all the same uh, chemicals in your mind is actually doing it. It creates the same stress on your body. And, and the fact is, it's not just about how we work. It's also about how we engage and play. I, I mean, how we engage in, like, when we're not working. There is so much to do. There is an endless stream of new restaurants and bars and nightlife scenes. And, and then beyond that, you have just, like, music. I mean, I remember a time when I bought, like, maybe five CDs a year. That stands for compact disc. And <laughs> amongst those five CDs, you get like 10 to 13, maybe 15 songs. And then whatever came on the radio, that was it. And then we moved, uh, the iPod came out, and I remember the big commercial was a 1,000 songs in your pocket. And you're like, a 1,000 songs in your pocket at all times. And of course, now we're to the point that I relate with the comedian who said like, hey, now we want all of our music on our phone. And the world's like, you want all of your music on your phone? Oh, oh no, 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 misspoke. We want all of the music on our phone. All of the music, how much are you willing to pay for that? Pay. <laughs> Here's my final offer, zero. In fact, I'm not even gonna pay for the phone. And beyond that, then we go into just our world of phones where you have endless amounts of things to read and to stream and to like and to scroll through. It is a 
constant sense uh, of just no wonder we've coined the term FOMO, a fear of missing out, because there's always a constant sense that you are. Netflix just got nominated for 13 Golden Globes for original content. They're increasing that every year, how many they get nominated for. It's interesting because amongst the reasons of why Netflix started making original content was because they realized that the consumption rate of the content they could get their hands on was not keeping up with the amount that people were watching. And so they decided, man, we've got to start like, adding to this or we're going to run out. And the big problem with that is, is that when you consume media, it actually raises your pulse and increases your stress level. And even if it's fun, engaging, enjoyable media, the fact is it's just made to stimulate you and raise you up on that scale. And that's how we rest as a culture. And of course, there's pace. I mean, can you go faster? Can you move, get further ahead? I mean, we have concepts like speed dating. And I'm not knocking it. Maybe you're a product of it. I'm not trying to knock that sense. But it's just like the idea of can we take all of the time that it takes to cultivate intimacy with a human being and just put it over the course of all these people in one so we can just go no, 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 yes, no, maybe no, yes, yes, no, and then figure out amongst those options who we'll go forward with. And then there's uh, an author named Carl Honoré who he was – in an airport one day and he was like a new father and he was at work and traveling and just like trying to figure out how to get his head on straight and he came across the concept of a one minute bedtime story and he said this is brilliant this will help me just like knock out things with my kids and then be able to get back to work and he said in that moment he felt convicted that he was using executive level strategy to try to conserve time with his children with whom he is the only dad they were given to love them. And so then he he said he repented of that, and he began instead wrote in praise of slowness, in which he just started to write about the fact that there is a huge health and life benefit to just learning to slow down. There's other examples I could give. I mean, personal life. I mean, a lot of like in the midst of raising small children and having children or you may be getting to older children where you have to go to school and practices and lessons and and then there's the point where you maybe get to older children plus you're also caring for your parents and you're like in between caring on both sides and, and then there's the endless amount of relationships and then on top of all that you can put christianity whereas the sense of like okay now there's a sense of i i i, w- I want to read this much of scripture and get through this much in a year and I want to pray and I want to be on mission to my neighbors and my coworkers, and I want to invest in discipleship and community and all these things and it continually has this weight of eternality put on top of it. And here's why I want to talk about all this because none of this is going away. In fact, a lot of what I'm talking about is not bad things. They're good things. But they are, the idea of work, in fact, in the Christian idea, if you read all the creation narratives of the world, of just how the world is created, one thing that is distinct about Christianity is that God makes work and he gives it dignity. All the other gods like make work as like a toil to put on a humanity, but rather our God, the Christian God, the God of the Bible says, no, I make work and I make it good. I make this idea that people participate, me, participate with me in the work of creation and pushing creation out into beauty over all of the world. But if we just hear that part of it and not hear the fact that we are called first, primarily not to do, but to be, to learn to take a deep rest, then we're going to burn out. 
we did a congregational health survey we talked about several times uh, about maybe a year and a half ago. And of that one thing that we learned is that nobody in our congregations, virtually nobody, is participating in any level of a Sabbath. We just read about it in Exodus. The Sabbath is a 24-hour rest, a ceasing, a stopping, an enjoying, a not doing but being. And we had the survey, the options, like, are, is anyone taking like 24 hours? Is anyone taking like half a day? Is anyone taking a portion of the day? There was, you know, varied responses amongst those. But in comparison to the room, we're like, man, we have all these plans. We have all these dreams. We have all these things we want to do. And I don't know what we're more fearful of as a pastoral team. We won't accomplish all of these things that we want to make disciples and see the city change and see the gospel go forward, or that we will accomplish those things, and none of you will be here because you'll be burnt out. And so if we want to accomplish all the things that we're praying for as a church, we have to take God seriously at his call to rest. Which is why of the first of the series that we wanted to do out of our Practicing the Way of Jesus for the Life of the World series, we did a vision series back in the fall, and then we said, hey, we're going to come back, and we're going to start going through little mini-series of different ways of practicing the way of Jesus. And the first one we said we need to start with is a Sabbath way of life, of learning to be a people that rests deeply in our Lord. And so for our morning's purposes, I simply want to look at what Sabbath is. And we're not going to get much into how-tos. That'll be more next week. But really, the goal of this is just to put in front of us a concept that, if we're honest, is foreign to most of us. Sounds crazy to most of us. But yet might just be not just salvation for your soul, but salvation for your your body, your existence, your day-to-day, and your mind. And so jumping in, just what is Sabbath? And you see in our text in verse 31, it said, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel, and said, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. God is serious about this. Jump down to 17. He says, It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested. And was refreshed. God rested. God rested. And he didn't need to. I mean, there's never a point where he's just like, whew, oh me, that was heavy. Like, there's never a point where he needs to rest, but yet he puts it in to say that, oh, the person is like, man, I'm tired. I just like to get things done. In fact, I can just, I, I, I rest by working. God rested. Or like, I, I just have so much responsibility. I have so many things crashing down on me. God rested. And it comes, this word rested is the word Shabbat, which of course where we get Sabbath and also sabbatical. And of its definitions, uh, one the way that we translate it is to cease. That ultimately, the first thing of what Sabbath is, is a day to cease. It's not just another day off to get all the stuff done that you didn't get done because you're abusing your body and your life to all the other six days of the week, but rather it is a full day to cease from all accomplishments, all to-dos, to have no agenda. In fact, you see this, God talked about this in Exodus 16. If you want to flip over there with me a few pages to the left, so I'm going to jump over a few teachings on Sabbath in the scriptures. 
Exodus 16, 13. So this is where the people of God have been saved by God out of slavery, and they're wandering around in the wilderness, and they need food. And so God figures that for him. He says, In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay on the ground of the camp. This is verse 13. I don't know if I mentioned. And when the dew had gone up, there was, uh, there was in the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, a fine a fro- uh, finest frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as you, uh, he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that uh, each of you has in your tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whatever gathered much had uh, nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms. Uh, there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath of the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. And on the seventh day, verse 27, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the six days he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out in the place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And what you see God calling his people to do and even orchestrating the way that he provides for them in the wilderness is to say that I want you to take one day and to just cease. And immediately they do, I mean, these are like, these Israelites are like really good Americans. They like think the sense of like, man, like if I get out there on the seventh day when no one else is gathering, I can store up, I can get ahead, I can start to like get a conglomerate of manna and I can just have something for a rainy day. Something if I feel sick and can't get up that day. Something if God doesn't come through that day. And ultimately God says, no, I I want to teach you that I am going to provide for you in six to cover for all seven. Ultimately, it becomes a day where we decide that it is not we who provide for ourselves. It is our God who provides for us. Because if you get into the I provide for myself game, that is a pit that has no bottom. There's always one more email to send. There's always one more to do to cross off the list. There's always one more task. And ultimately, the Sabbath is a day where we say, I'm not God. I'm created by God. And he did not create me a slave. I want to look at both those things really quick. I'm not God, and, and I'm not a slave. It, when we say that we're not God, Marva Don, who writes on the Sabbath, says Sabbath is moving from idolatry to faith. It's a sense of saying that if God is truly in control of all things and says that he can provide for me, that I'm going to trust him at his word. Because, see, we're under a sense of this very German idea, and in fact, it's a very recent idea in history, which is the idea of controlling time. 
I'm not sure, I haven't looked, done research on this in a while, I was working from memory of this, but basically the clock, if not invented in Germany, basically gets this really big, you know, uh, promotion in Germany to the fact where we're like, we are going to take this and we are going to splice up our day and be able to learn to take time back under our control. And we are very much so affected by that, but instead of us controlling time, time controls us. You wake up by an alarm, and then you look at the clock. And from, I, if your life is anything like mine, then it's just continually thinking out and doing math to hit all these time marks throughout the entire day, and even the time mark eventually to go back in bed and set a new alarm to start it all over again. The Sabbath is a day to give time back to God and say, I cease, you are God of time. It means you might do less in your life than other people who do not Sabbath. You might get less accomplishments, less promotions, less things done. And I say maybe because of all the research of productivity that says there's actually something to resting that makes you more productive. In fact, we can't talk about Sabbath in a church without bringing up Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A, of course, the one restaurant that takes a literal Sabbath by not working on Sunday, not giving and their employees not to work on Sunday. And there was, I read an article that said, like, how much does Chick-fil-A lose by forfeiting Sundays? And he just basically, he, he said, I'm just going to do simple math. I'm just going to take what they make in a year. And then I'm just going to, like, take, you know, what one day of proceeds would be and then just put that on the end and then multiply that by 52 for 52 weeks plus Christmas. And, and that is essentially $1.9 billion is what they forfeit on an annual basis. But he said, that's just straight math. He said, you have to consider the fact that they might lose money by opening up on the seventh day because of what they get for not being open on that day. In fact, it's interesting, Chick-fil-A is the eighth largest grossing fast food restaurant, and they do that with half of the amount of stores as the next, as number one, which is McDonald's. McDonald's, of course, uh, you know, has the most amount of stores and makes the most amount of proceeds. But Chick-fil-A doubles what McDonald's makes per store because there's just this constant sense of, I mean, they kind of put it down to simple things. I mean, it said that one thing is just like you create a craving by being shut down one day, where people are just like, man, I know I can't get to it on Sunday, so if it's Tuesday and I want Chick-fil-A, I absolutely need to get there because I might want it on Sunday and it's just not there for me, so I need to get it this day. And he says beyond that, you attract a better employee who actually now knows that they will get a day off every single week on Sunday that is given to them. And then he said, further still, you get, you get goodwill with people who generally see, like, hey, that's a cool thing that they're doing by just being closed and giving that people, and therefore, I want to patronize them more. And so they said, uh, there is a sense that Chick-fil-A, and I've heard that they've uh, mapped it out several times. Every single time they map it out, they lose money if they open, open on Sunday. Now, ultimately, I'm sure they could overcome it. They could become like McDonald's or Starbucks or whatever and figure it out and eventually make more and more and more. But ultimately, God says, hey, no, I, I'm working out a principle that I want you to trust the givenness of what I give you in six days and trust that to cover you for the seventh. I want you to accept the givenness of what I give you in working for six days and that that's going to cover your financial goals. That's going to cover your dreams for your life. That's going to cover you fulfilling my mission for you. 
A lot of us are big and in the mission of God and that we see that the Holy Spirit is always saying go and go and go. The funny thing is if you look through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit a lot of times says don't go there. Paul, don't go into this place. Don't go preach the gospel there. I mean, he's spreading the church from a room to the entire known world and the Spirit's saying mm, that's not a good day to go. Because sometimes the Spirit says, yes, there's plenty that you could do for me, but I want to work with you. And so it's, it's learning to cease and realizing that sometimes we just have to put a boundary and say one day or a portion of day, whatever it is, I'm not answering that call. I'm not checking my email. Maybe I'm not responding to the text. Maybe my phone's not even on. There's, for me, the Monday is Sabbath. I might text you back on Monday. I just kind of, like, my phone is on typically, but I just kind of give myself the permission to be like, even if I just be like, mm, I don't want to unlock my phone right now. I just don't do it. I just don't, I don't, I won't respond back to you. I'll respond back to you like maybe Monday night or Tuesday where I'm just like, sorry, I was delayed. I mean, I almost start all of my texts with sorry for my delayed response because that's just how I operate with the texting world. I'll, you text me and I will text you back anytime between now and the two weeks from now. And either way, it's a boundary to put that I will cease because we're not God. And then we're also not slaves. God gives them this command in Exodus 31 to Sabbath to rest right right after they've been taken out of slavery from Egypt, where they were made slaves under Pharaoh, who not only made them slaves, but, you know, when he hears that they want to leave and go worship their God, he says, well, then I'm going to put even more work on you. I'm going to say, hey, you make bricks without the straw that we gave you. You go gather the straw, now you make the bricks. And so it was given harder and harder tasks, and he was a cruel, oppressive slave master. And God takes them out of there and says, now I want you to learn to not be slaves. You're not under Pharaoh's rule, you're under mine. And I'm not a slave master. I'm a good father. Who I'm the one who takes care of you. There's a study done at Duke in which they studied, like, they basically took people. Or sorry, this was in Duke, this was Stanford. Uh, some school. Anyway, um, they, uh, they did this study in which they took people people, they took one group, and they treated them completely normal, just like normal everyday human beings, and then they took the test group, and they treated them like prisoners. They were cruel to them. They controlled when they could leave rooms, when they could go. They just, like, tried to control their entire lives and treated them like prisoners, and they said what they were basically looking for is, how are these people going to They said, it's no surprise, the people that you treat like prisoners started acting like prisoners. And it's funny when we look at our lives is because a world in which we engage like we're slaves, it's funny how we start acting like slaves. Slaves to work. Slaves to all of the things that come through my devices. When God says, hey, that's probably why God takes all this time throughout the scriptures to constantly refer to us as children. I mean, that's Matthew 7, right? Where he says, hey, which of you, by toiling, can add a single hour to your life? I mean, look at the bird of the field. They don't do anything, and I provide for them every day. Look at the lilies of the field. 
who don't toil and don't spin and don't sow, but yet they are clothed in such glorious wonder that even the kings of this world were not arrayed like them. And if your father who knows that you're so much more valuable to them than, than many birds and many lilies, will he not much more take care of you? It's a day to cease. Also, it's a day to enjoy. You can flip with me again or just stick where you're at, but Genesis 2 is actually where Sabbath comes from. It's not first in the Ten Commandments. It's earlier than that. Genesis 2, page 2. Verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work and he, that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work and all that he had done in all of creation. So we talked about how Sabbath, that Sabbat, it means to cease, but it also means to celebrate. It's the idea of stepping back when you complete something and just saying, man, that's not bad. That is not bad. It's this idea of taking delight in something. Do you know delight? Do you remember delight? This is, a, this is um, what's a concept from childhood. Um, in fact, if you really want to see delight, you have to just watch children because they just play. They have no desire to accomplish any task by the idea of play. It's just taking things and putting them together and imagining scenarios and just enjoying it. Or it's somebody who's just like unexpectedly overcome by laughter. Like the one where it's just like, wow, that guy kind of got control of them and they could not stop. I mean, that is what a full sense of delight is doing. And I fear and I think about myself that sometimes we start to lose the capacity for delight. As we get older, as we grow, as we get going and just become really utilitarian, how can I get this done? Then life becomes just an endless list of getting tasks done. And we lose this sense of just being present and enjoying. And we the really afflicted thinking that comes in us is we start to think that the only way you can achieve delight is by sin. How afflicted is that? I mean, just look at the world that God made. He made a world that is filled with ice cream and music that makes you want to sing at the top of your lungs and good fiction in sunsets, there was a sunset this past week that was just a crazy mix of purples, oranges, and I mean, we just had to like, I stopped, I got all my kids, and we all just looked at it, for, well, I looked at it for a minute, they looked at it for about 10 seconds, they are good at delight with play, not with sunsets, but either way, <laughs> it, it's sunsets, it's rich coffee, it, it's a world of football, where some of you just experienced your team going from a one in five start to a first round playoff win, praise Jesus, that is... <laughs> And fall colors and oceans and beautiful cinematography and laugh-out-loud comedy and deep conversations and painted deserts next to mountains and fish tacos 
in three-part harmony, water slides, dancing, sex. God creates a world in which all of that is present. All of that is good. It's, and then, I mean, all of Genesis is like him making it and just being like, that is awesome. And he makes more of it. He's just like, that's amazing still. And he just is in making it and enjoying it and delighting it. And he says, hey, I want you to take a day in which you just delight. You just look at creation and you just enjoy it because I'm a good God and I've made good things and I made you to enjoy all of what is good that I've made. The Jews on Sabbaths, I, I don't know if this is still true, but I know that it was true historically, had certain foods that they would only eat on the Sabbath. In fact, certain songs that they would only listen to and sing on the Sabbath. They were the favorite foods, the favorite songs. It was meant to say all of what is good, that there is something just sweet about this day. So it's a, to delight. It's also to delight in God. It's not just a day to delight in all the things that God has made without remembering the fact that, no, he, it says that God made the Sabbath day holy, which is an interesting concept. This is actually the first time that holiness shows up in all of the scriptures. And holy, of course, is to set apart. And what he sets apart is a day, a 24-hour period, which most gods would set apart a temple. This is where you come and worship me. And so you have to go, if you want to worship God, you have to go to that place and worship God there. But God says, no, I'm setting apart a day in which Abraham Herschel says, God creates a sanctuary, a cathedral of time, in which I experience, yes, God is everywhere and he's in all days equally, but there's something unique about his presence in a 24-hour day. And for Jews, it was always the seventh day. It was the, it was the Saturday in our, our language, but I don't think it really matters. In fact, you know, Christianity moves it to Sunday, and they kind of, like, it's not about a day. It's about just a day where I stop, and I rest, and I delight, and I just remember the fact that I'm made by God, and that he's not just the author of all of life. He is, in fact, life himself, and so it's a day to enjoy him to enjoy what he's made, and to sing songs that remind me of the fact that there's a story of this whole world in which he has made me to participate with it, with him in it. And Sabbath, ultimately, it's a gift. It's, it's a day to cease. It's a day to enjoy, to delight, celebrate, and also a day to be received as a gift. Because a lot of people say, like, well, okay, is Sabbath commanded? Because it's in the Ten Commandments. But interestingly enough, it's the only of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in the New Testament. And so a lot of people say, like, okay, well, Sabbath. In fact, if Jesus talks about Sabbath at all, he seems to be saying, like, man, cool it on the Sabbath, guys. I mean, like, I can heal on the Sabbath. I mean, for Jesus, the Sabbath was a day to... Um, to mess with the religious leaders. And, uh, and so he just regularly was healing people on the Sabbath. And so a lot of people think like, well, what's he trying to do? He's just trying to show like, hey, like you can do this on the Sabbath, which is true. But here's actually another interpretation that's interesting, that maybe he does a lot of his healing on the Sabbath because there's something healing and restorative about the Sabbath. There's something that heals our souls by participating in just resting and giving space and coming alive allowing creativity and patience and joy to return, allowing a sense of I don't control that to return, allowing a sense of not being God, of not being a slave, of being created by a good God who says you are not to work for me before you are with me. And, and so 
Ultimately, I, I don't know if it's a command. I don't know that it matters because ultimately it's wisdom. There's tons of research. You don't have to go into Christianity to find out all the things that say if you work hard six and don't rest seven, you start to experience health and mental and psychological detriments. I mean, just all sorts of things start failing in your life. In 1734, I believe it was, France tried to uh, reorient the calendar. There was a place in France that tried to make a 10-day week. And so they made 10 days, people worked nine, and rested 10. And months into it, depression and suicide skyrockets, productivity plummets, and they discontinued the experiment. Because there's something in the creative design that, that Sabbath wasn't just given as one of the Ten Commandments. It's given as of the first seven days of the week that God says, I do this, and now I give it to you as a gift. I don't know if it's a command. It's a gift. A gift for you to enjoy for you to participate in. And just a a couple random things here before we close. We'll get into more of how-tos next week again, but some of you are like, okay, that sounds nice, pastor. Um, But I I live in the work world, and I have children, and uh, how is this ever possible? Or maybe... God help you, maybe some of you are medical residents, and some of you are, and I don't know how you are ever going to become a doctor without, like, having, like, a three-year period where you pretty much are just, you are a slave. That's what you are, and you're a slave by the medical community, and, and there's not, medical is not the only side. There's certain places where you're just like, what if I can't do that? I'd say, yeah, I, ultimately, God's not a slave driver, and Sabbath is not a slavery. It's not a sense of, like, okay, now you single mom, you figure out how to do it, and if you don't, then then I condemn you. But rather, no, it's a sense of, it's an invitation, it's a gift. And I would say just two simple things on that practically. Can you find something? A half a day, a couple hours, a portion of your day to just remind yourself you're not God and you're not a slave. You are God's child and he provides for you. And then ultimately, can that season, that season can be a season, but it can't be a lifestyle. And so it can be three, it can be, it can be a year, it can be two, it can be three, it can be four. I, I, it can be a certain season. But if you're in, eventually, when you have the ability to change it, or maybe you kind of like say like, man, like I just go from season to season, I never have the ability to change it. That's because you're not changing it. That yes, there might be eventually times where you have to say, I will do less. I will accomplish less. I will be obedient to how God has designed me. And I will allow the six days to cover the seventh. Because ultimately, the most beautiful piece of Sabbath is that it is a day to cease and a day to celebrate and a day to be received as a gift. And it's also a day to remember. Because Sabbath is a day that reflects your salvation. You, a lot of us build identity from work. I mean, I was there this week. It's been like kind of, a, I, I've talked with a lot of you, it's been like a tough season, but man, I had like a really good first week of the year. I always, January provides good working energy for me. And maybe it's, it's just dark and I just get stuff done. And uh, I was just like killing stuff. And I remember saying to my wife like partway through and very much so knowing this sermon was on the docket of like, I honestly feel really good this week and it's because I'm getting stuff done and I feel like my existence is more justified. 
It's Chariots of Fire, the only movie made about the Sabbath in like the last hundred years, in which it's about the 1924 Olympics where they follow two runners, and Eric Liddell is one of them. And he won't run one of the gold medal races he's favored to win because he finds out it's on a Sunday. And he says, ultimately, I can't. And then he's talking about running. He talks about the fact that he said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his smile. And then the other character, Harold Abrahams, he talks about running. And when he runs the race that Eric Liddell won't run, right before it, he's just sitting there and he eventually does medal. He does get the a prize. But right before he runs, he says, when that gun goes off, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my entire existence. And that's how you and I live every single day. I have a 50-year career. I have an 80, 90-year life to justify my entire existence. The funny thing is, is that we think of God like telling us to work and that we work six days and the last day we Sabbath. So it's like, okay, you put in the hard six and then you get the seventh as your reward. But the actual, the reality is, is that God worked the first week. He makes us and he says, first thing you do, rest. Sabbath doesn't come last for us. It is the first fruits. And then it's a reminder of you don't work and therefore I love you. It is, I love you. Now let's get to work. I mean, I think of my sons who are like now creating things and they just want to show me, uh, here is something I colored in. I mean, my oldest, I mean, he just never liked coloring. He was always just like, check it off a list. And all of a sudden he shows us this page where he colored different colors and actually relatively in the lines. And he was like beaming to show us. And my second son, he just like loves, like he loves going um, to the Athenaeum Y for their childcare because not all Y is created equal with their child care. Um, but there you go, and they do like a craft and a song and a lesson, and they come back, and they're just like, and he said, like, one day he showed up, and he asked for a craft, and they didn't have a craft, and they're like, all right, we'll make you a craft. And he said he was doing his craft, and they, when we come to pick him up, he said, my mommy and daddy are going to be so proud of me. And we are, because he's, he's little, and he's making these little things, and we like, look at him like, man, there's something beautiful to what you're doing. But, but we're quick to say, hey, hey, we don't love you because you've made this. We don't love you because you did this. We love you because you're our son. We love you because you're our child. And out of that, out of that identity, we go forward. Because ultimately, even for the fact that, that which makes us sons and daughters, that's what makes us as children, is not our work, but Jesus's. Because Jesus on the cross, the last thing he says is, it is finished. And what he's saying in that moment is that everything that's required for salvation, everything that makes you a son or daughter of God has been fulfilled not by you grunting it out, but by me. And you coming and accepting the fact that I have done everything and you merely accept the resume. You merely take your sin and give it to me on the cross and you take my work and apply it to you for salvation. And that's ultimately what we do at communion here. Communion is a reminder that it is finished. And a weekly reminder on what may be a Sabbath, if any of you take it, maybe you take it on Sunday, maybe you don't. But it is a weekly reminder of the fact that you have all things finished for you in the finished work of Jesus, not your own. 
There's nothing about you grunting it out. It's all about you resting on the work of Jesus. And then out of your loveness, out of your belovedness, then we go with God and we get to work. This is a day and this is a moment to remember you are not valuable from what you do. You are valuable because of who says you are valuable. And who says you're valuable is the king of all creation in the universe. So in a moment, we'll have stations where you can come and take communion, the gluten-free station up here to my right and left. You can take a piece of the bread or the wafer, break it off and dip it in the cup. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we invite you to stay in your seat and not to make you feel unwelcome, but to feel welcome. You don't have to